0: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Glad that y'all are back in here to listen to another one of our episodes. We have a really good one today. A uh, few things that we wanted to do, let y'all know what we're about is about making better shooters, anything centerfire and fire. Uh, Rifles Only is what we're based out of. Um, again, we have, we're have we going to cover some questions really quick, and then we have a special guest with us, and we'll get this stuff uh, going. Uh, first off, the new schedule is out for Rifles Only. Uh, so the spring schedule is out starting in, in January, running all the way through June. We've got classes in Texas as well as in Colorado for right now. If there's another class that you want to get done, all you got to do is just send us an email over to Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast, ROAP at Rifles Only. Um, again, if you wanted to get updates on that, uh, the newsletter. If you go to www.riflesonly.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. And anytime we have anything going on, spe- specials out of our pro shop, or new classes that have been uh, put up on on uh, online, you can go there and it'll come into your inbox. Uh, you can keep up with the with what's going on at Rifles Only. There. Um, first question. Uh, no, let me go to that. Not that question. Okay. First one comes in. Hey, is there a specific way to dial your scope turrets while on the clock? Is there an advantage to coming off the rifle with my right hand if I'm a right-handed shooter, etc.? What if I'm a wrong-handed shooter? Or is it all just preference and muscle memory? Uh, I got some thoughts on that one. You want to tackle it first, David?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, that That's actually a good one. I have a conversation a lot. Uh, first off, uh, I guess I'll get it out of the way. A lot of changes that we're going to do, because we're talking about being on the clock, so I'm assuming, you know, uh, well, you could be uh, on, on an animal or something like that, but we're talking about a match and on the clock. Uh, it's it's a stacking thing, so any one little thing, because I, I kind of get that argument, well, I'm not going to lose, uh, you know, I'm not going to miss because of an extra second here, it, it, which is true, but it's seconds that add up. So it's dialing your turret this, uh, a certain way. It's uh, not knowing when your feet are going to be positioned for the next one. All those, those things add up. So that being said, I... I'm a pretty big fan of basically uh, economy of motion. So you're already, if you're, let's say you're, let's take your right-handed shooter with a right-handed gun. You're, you're already going to be running the bolt with your right hand. So it's already coming off of the gun uh, to your, your support hand. Uh, now that we're doing these big, heavy rifles, big, heavy bags, it's not as big a deal, but normally your support hands really locked in and holding your rifle. in. so if you, if you go to switch up, so one, you're taking your hand, your right hand's already off the rifle uh, and if, if you're going to use your left hand like I see a lot of people do, they have to grab the rifle again, then they have to let go of the support of the rifle with the left hand, reach up, dial their turret, put their hand back, reestablish a support, then let go of the rifle again, reach up with their right hand, dial a turret, and then go back and run the bolt and establish there. Uh, it, and if you look at that and add up the, the movements, it's, it's almost twice as many movements, something like three or four movements versus seven. I dial, and I had to train this out of my myself a while back. I used to always want to dial with my support hand or my left hand, but now I, I dial with my right hand. It's already off of the rifle, and I don't have to break my support. So, yeah, I think, in my opinion, that that is the quote-unquote correct way to do it. If, if you're in a compromised position or if you're moving position, like you're already picking the rifle up to move to another position, you set it down and you want to use your support hand because it's it's already there, that's fine. But as far as while I'm on the rifle... Shooting, uh, making corrections, and staying on the gun. I'm going to be uh, taking my right hand and dialing those turrets.
0: All right, I got a little bit, uh, a little bit of a different take on it, mm-hmm. and I think it it might go back to it might go back to the carbine work, but it even even showed it up on the on the match that we had this this last Sunday out here. Um, we had a, a 15, a 15 round stage. And so we know with our, mm-hmm. with our precision guns, we're running 10 round magazines on them. And so, you know, the carbine, you know, it's like, I put my firing hand on the carbine and I like, I mean, I am very reluctant to take it off, you know? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed that carbine, IE change magazines, uh, you know, with my support hand, with my left hand. And that's mm-hmm. where I'm keeping my magazines is on my left side. So I think the question is valid. And I think your answer is, is more than more than valid. It's just that I don't know. I felt always felt like you got to feed the gun with the left hand, you know, once the firing grip is on there, leave it on there. But again, you're talking about the difference between a semi-automatic gun and a bolt gun. So that if you're, you're right, if your hand is already off, you know, then, you know, why not, why not just go ahead and do your turrets. But then if you do have to have a magazine change, which we're famous for here at rifles only, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to have to let go with your left hand anyway. And so, i i feel like that i i feel like it's like tomato tomato on on that question you know it's not it's not any it's, i don't think there's a wrong way as long as you practice it
1: oh no i agree and uh and, and that's a good point so i will i still feed the you know when i do my mag chains all over the bolt gun i still operate it Pretty much the same as a carbine. I'm going to uh, feed it with my left hand. And then that that's another thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I practice a lot or quite a bit. So for me, I'll always be dialing with the right unless, again, it's it's just dialed into me. Now, if I'm going to make a mag change and then I have to adjust my turrets, I'll usually use my left hand. Or, like you <laughs> said, if we've picked up the rifle and set it down and you're already off of it. But, yeah, I, I completely yeah. agree. I've tried feeding the rifle a bolt gun with my right hand. I'm, I'm thinking it, it might be possible but it just doesn't feel yeah. good to me. So I, I, I still dial a turrets in my right hand, but I feed the magazines with, with my left hand. They stay on my left side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. I don't know. I feel like whenever I get into a position, I'm pretty well locked in anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if I, if I, even on my bulk gun, you know, the only time I'll take it off is when I'm actually running the bolt. Like I say, I think it's tomato, tomato. And, and he put it actually in there. You know, what is, what is the best thing that you practice and everything else kind of answered his own question. But, um, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like that, I guess it goes back to, you know, trying to keep everything as consistent as I can through all weapon systems. You know, so if my, if my hand's going to come off there, you know, it, we get that big drag about, you know, all right, you got to take off your magazine, you know, every time you move it rifles only. I say, well, yeah. And then we kind of saw it this past weekend. We had several, several magazine fumbles that were completely, you know, unforced errors. You know what I mean? Cause people weren't, used to changing that magazine, because we don't do it with our bolt guns like we do with our carbines or, or pistols. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, very cool. That's a, that's a question that guy asked a lot of questions, and I'm, I'm proud of him, and I appreciate him sending it in. Uh, the next one I got, we got some uh, some feel good into this. He gets a brief look deep into the precision rifle industry in a, u- in a unique way that flybys just can't offer. Thank you for that. But anyway, his question is about structured barrels uh, from a company called TACOM. And he's going to put together a long-range rifle in 6.5 PRC, 7 SOM, or 7 Sherman Short or other similar short-fat cartridge. Obviously, these push a lot of gas through a small orifice, uh, leading to premature throat erosion and quickly burned-up barrels. To alleviate this to some degree, I'm considering the structured barrel. The data on the structured barrel indicates significantly increased cooling, but it's more cost, way more. And to me, anyways, a lack of significant primary source material pertaining to favorable or unfavorable end results outside of the manufacturer, he would like to hear or read our thoughts on, on the topic. Um, is the, so the question is, are, are the benefits worth the added cost, and does the barrel work as advertised? Uh, is the barrel harmonically dead? They're making, it says that they make, you know, load development real easy. And is it true? And compared to a non-structured barrel, would we see an added round count? Well, I went over and I reached out to take and, um, I have not heard back from them yet, but I went through their website pretty extensively. And basically what it is is structured barrels a little fatter, but you would think it would carry more weight. It, it really doesn't. Because you have your primary through bore, which your projectile is going to go and then on the outsides of that, there are additional holes drilled. Mm-hmm. And so what this does is it allows more airflow into that inner barrel. And it, it well, just because because they're taking away metal, it's increased uh, surface area for cooling. And he's talking about pushing some, you know, some really you know hot cartridges through there that are known to have a short barrel life. Um, I want, I wanted to get this out so that the guy knew that I was on it, but I want to wait back until I hear back from Tocom uh, or TACom. I've, um, I've looked at their website and I've looked at their data and, you know, their statistics on there and they've measured it, you know, as far as, you know, heat dissipation and things like that. Uh, But again, I want to talk to them before I go ahead and, and give a final opinion on that. But um, it it is interesting. You you should probably go to that website and check it out, David. It it looks pretty cool. Yeah, Um, I've been keeping
1: up with them or looking into it a lot. Uh, I don't, like I said, I'm the same way. I don't want to, I'm not an expert on it by any means and I haven't owned one. So uh, they're, it's a merge, It's an emerging technology, even though it's been around for a while. It's still emerging, quote unquote. So, we need to yep. let the experts speak on it, and at the same time, there just needs to be more data. I, I couldn't. I don't think I. You know, maybe let Tacom get back with you and say, but even then, mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel comfortable myself giving out a whole lot of info because I, I haven't put hands on it, and it's still something we're learning about.
0: Well, ideally, what they'll do is send me a barrel, and I can mm-hmm. test it myself. You know, but. Right. I'm not sure that they're going to do that. I think their their base cost on their barrel is right at a grand. It's pretty rough. So, there, yeah. yeah. So you're you're starting to you know you're starting to get into some to some real money there by the time you have them chambered and everything else. But I think they're doing chambers. You know they're doing a really good cost of you chamber it and thread it for a suppressor at the end and all that. So I'm not going to. But again, you know the with the with the work that went into those barrels, I think there's six or eight holes going around there. So not only do you have to drill your first hole, but um, you know, you got to drill the, the rest of them too, you know? And so it, it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that pans out. Yeah, it is work. It is work. But if it's something that works, you know, it, it might be one of those things to where if you're shooting one that you've got a pretty good barrel life already, uh, six, five Creedmoor, um, 308, you know, something that's not a big overbore like those are, then, you know, maybe it's not worth it on those, those lighter calibers. Uh, but then if you do get into those ones where, like you said, you're pushing, you're pushing a lot of gas, you know, through that real small hole. And so it, it does lead to throat erosion. But again, I don't know. I'm kind of like one of those guys. I feel like barrels are like tires. You need to change them once a year, whether they need it or not. <laughs> so yeah. But at any anyway, rate, I, I just wanted to let the, I, we're, we're on it. Okay. We're on it. Uh, next one comes in about, uh, visualization uh-huh. and, visualization and training. And I, I talk about it in my classes a lot, you know, and it's, it's basically, you know, when we're training, we're training the, uh, the hunter, you know, who has a, a certain area that he has to rest his rifle on or the competitor more, more obviously the competitor, if you have a certain prop that you're going up to. And I always, always say, okay, once, once I, when I'm doing a, a train up course or something like that, I say, Hey, once I hand you that book, you know, and you walk up to that stage, read through what the stage description is, and then look at the prop. You know, we know what we have out here. We've got culverts, you know, we've got barricades, we've got tank traps, you know, look at your prop. We've got the rope. say, hey, all right, here's what I'm gonna do. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, my barrel's gonna go here, my bag is gonna go here, I'm going to load my gun in this fashion, here's where my foot's gonna go. In other words, by the time they get up there and do it, they should have already gone through it in their head, you know, a hundred times. So they're not fumbling up there. And then of course, there's also the things that you take care of before then, if you know that, if you know that you're shooting a target that's at, at 600 yards, then put your dope on the rifle while you're not on the clock. Don't get up there with the hundred yard zero on it and then have to adjust your parallax and your elevation settings and all that. Um, you know, in other words, in other words, come up with a plan, you know, and then also, you know, have that, visualize where you're gonna be, you know, what's gonna be your most, um, your, your best chance of economy of motion whenever you go up there to where you can deliver a very accurate shot in the shortest amount of time. Now, uh, I had one of my clients and we, you know, we were working on the culverts. And we went from, you know, from, the, from time starts now to first round, like 32 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we were going through all of this stuff and, and the visualization process and, and doing all your housekeeping before the clock starts, it got down to where he was getting a shot off, you know, in less than 10 seconds. And so that's a huge, a huge reduction in basically washing all the dust off, you know, with the broom, you know, you're getting all the trash out of the way to where whenever the clock starts, the only thing you have to do is build that position, load the rifle and make an accurate shot. And so if you keep on visualizing that, you know, over and over and over, and then it also goes into the other things too. Um, We we talk about the fundamentals of marksmanship down here constantly, as you well know, and, you know, the the thing about it is, is like a lot of times whenever I'm doing my dry fire and even my live fire, I will actually have a mental picture in my head of that trigger coming straight back, you know, especially when I'm shooting in high winds. Um, I just, that's just what I do. I don't know why I have that picture in my head, which is also a form of visualization. And then what I, I also visualize myself chasing the bullet right into the target and almost I know it's not real, but I kind of will the bullet to go where I want it to go. You know what I mean? So I'm like watching it and keep an eye on it and if it needs to be bitch slapped a little bit to make it perform the way I want it to, which also goes back to, you know, obviously, you know, running the fundamentals correctly. And I think that helps you a whole bunch.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, I, I think you covered a lot of it. I uh, it, it's all about having a plan. Uh, me personally, if I get up to a stage, you give me, the you know, I got the match book, I get up there. I see uh you know let's take the i don't want to say worst case scenario but uh worst case scenario is you got multiple targets you know three or four targets three or four positions and uh one i'll find them all in the gli my uh spotter or binos whatever i have i range everything just because you never know um i like to right and i, and I also i dope my rifle with that range finder i'm pretty sure they're all gonna mm-hmm. be pretty close in rimfire it makes a little bit more difference in my opinion because uh you know range finders do have a, some error and then uh you know you start getting out to 2 300 yards and now all of a sudden 4 or 5 yards does matter it, it it'll right. it, it'll be the difference between a miss and, and not so i especially in rimfire i prefer to range everything myself and with the range finder i dope the rifle with cuz you will have some odd stuff in rimfire center fire not that big a deal as long as it's within you know 20 30 40 yards something like it's still going to be pretty good on the size targets we're doing uh so I, and then i'll write everything down get my dope and everything written down uh, like you said i'll get on my first uh i'll have my first elevation dialed in i'll have the parallax uh, dialed uh, you know i know some of them some scopes uh some rifle scopes don't have the actual yardage marked on there but you get used to what your uh you know what it is so i'll have it dialed in the, the parallax dialed in pretty close and then like you said i will go through every step and i've done it a, a hundred times i'll wa- either watch other people shoot or i'll just go through it and and I've, it's, it's a choreograph in your head, in my head that I'm walking through each thing. I'm going to, I'm going to take this shot. I'm going to pull a bolt bag. I'm going to uh, move my turrets, whichever hand you decide to use. Uh, and then I'm going to shoot again. And then I'm going to take two steps or whatever it is. I already know what I'm going to have. And don't me wrong. Things will come up. Something will happen that you don't, uh, you know, you'll have a malfunction or what you thought was going to work on a prop didn't work. However, and I've heard that argument from guys who are like, well, you know, you might, you're might you going to run this stuff. Well, yes, but if you don't already have a plan, then you're thinking mm-hmm. about how to run the actual stage uh, that you should have already been thinking about. And then when something, when a problem comes up, then you have to add that to your thought process. When you already have your plan, for the most part, that's in the back of your head. You've run through it enough that you're not worried about. And then when a malfunction or something different comes up, you don't panic. You, you work through it because you have the, uh, I want to say the... The clarity, I guess the clarity of mind that's not uh, being stacked on with all this other stuff. And at the same time, back to the, the fundamentals, I like to get it to where unless something, a malfunction or a weird position that I didn't expect comes up, all I want to be thinking about, I already have my wing and I've already, I should go back. I've already made my initial wind calls, brackets, whatever I feel like I'm going to do. And I'm going to adjust what I'm seeing. But all I want to have to think about is... Uh, I just think, a uh, breathing trigger control, uh, follow through. And I mean, you know, recoil management yep. and all that stuff's already kind of being worked on, but I just think, and my best matches is when I'm super focused and all I think is breathing trigger follow through and watching what it does. Yep. And that, and I mean, anytime, like I said, my best matches that that's all I've even think about somebody, you know, people ask me, what do you think? I'm just thinking about, and I'm a, and I'll even breathe deep and through my mouth, just to exaggerate and make sure that I'm breathing. So people will hear me on the stages. And then pressing, press break and freeze. And I, I want to have as little in my mind except for fundamentals as possible.
0: I hear you. And the other thing too is you know know that you know the you're probably not going to be off on the range. You know, I mean we do have continental drift, but you know, but you know that's going to be the one. You know, if you do, if you do, Matt miss a target, have a plan to know what you're going to do next. You know what I mean? I mean, if you go out there, if you're if you're at a place to where you can't. you you don't have any backer to where you can see dust fly or, you know, which direction on the target you missed, have a plan on what you're going to do because it was probably the wind call that did it for you. And, or, or in this case, didn't do it for you. So say if I miss, if I miss with this wind hold, then I'm going to go to this wind hold and do it because a lot of people, they get stuck in a rut to where, They'll have a wind hold. they'll miss because of the wind hold, but they'll do it again you know what I mean they'll do it again and do it again and you can't do that I mean if that if what you did just didn't work do something different because you're not you're not gonna get any points for missing
1: uh, yeah and we uh, we'll have to do that in another episode I did that one earlier kind of on a win strategy but that's that's what say yeah. you know have an idea um especially for me if I if there's something where I, I either know it's not going to show up a lot or I hear a lot of guys going oh man I I can't see anything down there. I'm gonna start yeah. making some pretty like a, a lot large if the especially if the winds you know pretty consistent and and you've been hitting all day whatever but if it's a big switchy winds or just big winds in general or you're going through some some different uh, wind zones or whatnot I will that's when I start holding a good amount more wind uh, because if if uh, if I make kind of an in between call and I miss I don't know whether I held too much or too little. So I'll yeah. start making a bigger wind call that way. I only have one direction to move, or or something similar. But but basically the idea yeah. is what you were saying is have a plan, and it could change. Yeah. Don't think that it's going to be the same every time. I mean, if if there's almost no wind, and you know, then it's going to be a whole lot different than a switch a wind switching from four o'clock to uh, to eight o'clock on you. So yeah, there's a different plan, and like you said, make sure you have it because I've watched. I mean, you you sent a round down. And if you don't see the first one because you didn't follow through or you weren't sure about your win call, that, that shot is wasted. You know, now you have to make yep. another one to try to figure it out. So,
0: yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Well, cool, man. We can get into that another time as oh, well. Yeah. I'd like to get onto I'd like to get onto our guest today. Um, uh, he's uh, living out in the west, and he's been a really good friend of mine for a long time. Um, his name is Marco Gonzalez. And uh, I'd like to just uh, introduce you, Marco. Uh, this is Marco, really good friend of mine. We've worked together a lot in the past. Uh, say hello and, and tell us a little bit about yourself, sir.
2: Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me on, if as well. Um, appreciate the time here. Chat about all things offensive countermeasures, banging, uh, martial arts. So uh, happy to uh, answer any questions that you might have to up.
0: So well, cool, man. Where are you from?
2: Um, I'm originally from East Coast, Jersey specifically, uh, grew up there, right across the river from Manhattan, Bronxville, from Queens area there, but in in Jersey, yep.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I've, I've I've never I've been to New York, but never to New Jersey, with the exception of Cape May. <laughs>
2: So yeah, so yeah. Those those are the nice Jersey people down there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I
0: know crazy. a lot of people from Jersey. They're nice people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the area I grew up in was uh, pretty ethnically dense. You got Ellis Island there. A lot of history. You're right across the river from Manhattan. So you know, when you're when you're a little bastard and you're cutting school, that's where you go run wild. Is over in New York City and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, you come back to the neighborhoods there, and uh, to times.
0: So you were you were pulling some Paris Bueller days off time whenever you were in school, huh? Frequently, many, <laughs> Well, good. Well, good. Well, brother, um, I, I'll, I'll get into our, what our history is about a little bit later. But tell me about your career, man. How, what what got you to this point in your life, Marco? A uh,
2: snapshot here on the martial arts, and you know, I got about I don't know thirty five years. Uh, training, went through a couple different journeys there from back in the early days, uh, obsessed with Soldier of Fortune and the guys that were being written about, kind of following their footsteps there. Uh, Korean arts, Hwarang uh, Do, uh, you know, did some Filipino arts with thick and knife. you know, a scream on these, that type of stuff. Uh, segued out of there, more into the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu aspect starting in the in the early mid 80s when you know this is pre-UFC just uh, getting very comfortable on the ground. Uh, you know, one of my early instructors was uh, very fond of having an eclectic mix, um, kind of you know, uh, in the way to just handle different different scenarios. Everything's not ring sport, and everything doesn't have to be a violent altercation. But how do you handle the different types of Areas of a combative situation. So the ground was part of it. Weapons became part of it. Stand up hand to hand became part of it. And that kind of formed the formed the mix, um, taking those different disciplines and tying them together.
0: hmm. Right. Well, you're also a veteran.
2: I'm also a veteran. Along um, to the canoe club and um, got some good brothers there and uh, got a chance to know jump into the sandbox when shit kicks off and then did a little extra work afterwards uh contract type stuff and kind a little a little dirty time with that as well um but you know on the journey just the passion of learning and teaching you know, and i was just saying always be the student and uh have the opportunity to uh always be the teacher has i've been kind of blessed with that you know so i got a few Few decades under my belt, including times at the teams where that was kind of one of my primaries was, training guys up. Um, but on the civilian side, that passion, um, you know, kind of segued in when you know guys were like, "Hey, you know, you think you could put something together for, for our wives, for our girlfriends?" So I created at that time. There, as we had to discuss the uh, the protector, course, and that was really focused on, you know. Uh, sexual assault countermeasures, counter-rape type stuff. You know, how, how, do, how does a smaller, lesser-powered person deal with a uh, with violent attack? So on one side of the fence, training guys, whether they were Bill le or just motivated civilians for self-preservation, um, or the women had these two courses. So the, the course for the guys was the, as you know, at the OCM, offensive countermeasures, the course for the girl was the protective um, the difference between the two? Well, they're segregated. The girls' course is is really focused just on that specific topic of sexual assault, counter rape, and getting into the different types of um, holds and positions that they would find themselves into. Whereas the guys' course kind of steered more for operators. That's where DNA came from. We'll talk about that in a sec. But um, you know, how do you how do you handle? An unarmed confrontation. Again, this is not ring sport. That's not really my forte. Um, although Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is used, uh, I'd say, uh, as one of the key ground fighting elements that, and, and wrestling props to the wrestlers out there. Um, so I'm, I'm a creature of the ground, you know, uh, been grappling and getting involved and fishing it out for, uh, for a good 25 years. And, uh, the ground is a great element of it, but what do you do prior to the ground? What do you do when you're in between two parked cars in a hallway, in an alleyway, in a doorway, leaving your house, standing at an ATM, getting attacked? Those types of things where it's not well lit, where you don't have good footing, where you might be tired, where you're not maybe 100% switched on in, you know, in you know, conditions yellow ready to flip to orange when you're you know your guard's down how do you how do you pull it off and so that's where these methods really came from is you know non-ring sport i i'd say the father of american combative close quarter combative close combat all those names are kind of synonymous came out of rex rex applegate here in the united states uh was a military officer and was one of the original trainers or actually who started the program there for the OSS, the predecessor to uh, the agency. Um, That was our intelligence service during wartime, during World War II. Um, And then he created some of the programs um, for our standard military personnel, including the um, hardcore devil dogs out there that were storming beaches. Back in the day, they would go through his uh, training program. And um, his training came from, Probably the undisputed father of close quarter combatants, which uh, which came out of the UK, which was Fairburn. Um, Fairburn was uh, a very well adept martial artist, but also utilizing his skills operationally. He was one of one of the uh, original proponents there of the Shanghai police force. There, these guys were holding court, walking the streets, dirty city alleyways there, in the red light districts. And thumping heads and kicking indoors and really using that as a test bed to what martial arts work, what doesn't work, and the why. And, uh, you know, on one of those, one of those wild patrol nights, he got his ass boxed and cleaned by the tongs over there. And, uh, you know, kind of opened them up to what do I really don't? What do I, what do I know? What do I not know? And, uh, you know, a lot of martial artists go down these paths myself included for your best 10 years and find yourself shit, man can't find myself out of a wet paper bag. And, um, he went down this journey and really started studying the art and science of, uh, close quarter combatives. Again, nothing to do with, with, uh, what was mainstream being taught back out there. So he became kind of the, the two guy where, uh, Rex Applegate, um, you know, would go and, and train with, um, you know, Fairburn also came over to the Canadians and trained those guys up there along with uh, one of his instructors uh, Sykes another British officer and uh, you know all things brutal violent hands to hand with and without weapons armed and all so
0: so where where it's come up now where where we are now with with OCM um, what is the purpose of it. I mean, I get that there's a difference between what you're doing with OCM and competitive martial arts. Um, Mm -hmm. what, and so like explain kind of that to me, you know, what, what, if I go up to you and I, I mean, I've been, I've, I've, I've been here when you've done them. Um, you know, I, I know what you're doing, but for somebody that doesn't know, like if I walk in with, with no skill set and I'm just wanting to be able to protect myself on the street, what are you going to do for me during that, during that period? To, I mean, how do, you, how do you go about that? Because I know that it's very, very, it's easy. It's, an, it's easy to learn, but I think other people need to understand why it's easy.
2: Well, the techniques, um, as they were developed back then, um, they needed to take uh, a small group of guys with a very limited period of time and do some significant saturation training in a block where they could come away with skills that they could replicate on their own without the traditional methodology, training methodology of martial arts, where, you know, you go to the dojo or the gym and get on the mat, whatever, slap hands and get after it, you know, three, four, five days a week of grinding for, you know, five to 10 years and develop that level of proficiency. Um, and And then you got it, right? Well, who has time for that? is kind of the the question mark. And it started off, who had time for that, when it was guys deploying, when it was for keeps, when it was, hey, we got to get some operatives who are going to be working by themselves clandestinely or they're going to be storming a beach. But we only got them for maybe three, four weeks and only for a couple hours each day. So how do we get these guys inoculated to danger where they can go out there and get it on? And I think that comes back to gross motor skill acquisition under stress. So under stress, you know, you flip into tachypsy effect, excluded auditory input, tachycardic, shortness of breath, tunnel vision, and loss of fine motor skills, complex motor skill capabilities. So the techniques are predicated on gross motor skills so that when you are jacked with adrenaline and getting, you know, Elvis leg, even just standing, watching a fight, you know, and somebody thinks, well, shit, man, I, I can't do this. Um having these gross motor skills makes it that much more easier to wire that neural pathway so that you can, you can come back and and replicate this stuff. So the techniques, um, while they are simple and they're, they're effective, um, they stick. I've had students come to me 12 years, 15 years later, cross paths with guys that I had maybe two, three training blocks with they leave, they made some notes. They practice on their own, found the buddy, and here they are a decade later replicating it and or using it for real and giving me some really good blow-by-blows of how they, you know, unleash the sequence or whatever. So that's kind of the difference there is it isn't going to take them decades or even years to just master these things. They're, They're not complex moves, and so it's easier to wire, I'd say. Uh, through the, the neuromuscular pathway. that would say that's the short answer.
0: And it's not new. It's not new.
2: It's not new. I mean, the, the forefathers here, these guys we're talking about, um, Applegate, Fairbain, Sites, you know, res- with respect to Sites. These guys were born in the late 1800s and they've been to the 40s um, and 60s. Um, there were predecessors, uh, Biddle and Applegate. Uh, you know, they lived they live a little longer than that, but uh, it's been around. You know, it's just been formulated. And again, props to the, the forefathers there to really analyze and say, well, how did guys used to fight in feudal Japan? What were what were combative arts like in some of these other countries, and why did they fight that way? Maybe a guy got into a classic horse dance because he was suited up with you know 100 plus pounds of armor and was fighting with a sword. Is that practical today? You know, a guy walking with groceries for park car. You know, leaving a mall, leaving work in an elevator. You know, in a shitter stall at a subway. You know, you're at the exchange place for my NYC guys when you're coming on the on the subway platform and you know you got two dudes. How how do you handle that? Because you can't treat it like a traditional in a traditional stance and thinking you're going to have space and and time, and a referee, you know. No dish to my MMA animals out there. Those guys are beasts, and they train and grind hard, and they're expert at what they do. This course, though, those guys have spent their lifetimes harnessing those skills, cultivating Western boxing, grappling, right? The the wrestling arts, freestyle, Greco-Roman, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, their stand-up, their Muay Thai. Again, that's the model of, I'm going to train three, four, five times a week. I'm going to become a professional fighter and I'm going to do this over the long haul. And then I'm going to go in the ring and whoop some ass. The guys that are coming to me, they're not those guys. They're guys that are like, Hey man, I'm an operator. Here's my skill skillset. But I do stack on doors and blow in and I need to be able to handle myself when we enter a room. What can you give me now? Or they're doing some other type of work where they are operating by themselves and, you know, or maybe a a two man detail, um, you know, plain clothes overseas in shady places, how do they handle it? So there you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's, I know, I know that I know that you've had your, your feet in both sides of that house by, by training the OCM, but I also know that you, you have fought competitively before and done quite well uh, That's for another podcast. But, um, I know that you you've been able to to do that, and, and like I said, I've seen this. Uh, I've had you uh, down here quite a few times. We'll get about that in, in a little bit. But you had mentioned earlier uh, the Protect Her course, and I know that you were just down here in our area, and uh, and you did you did one of these courses just earlier this summer, and mm-hmm. um, and it was uh, you know, it, we were able to, to set that up and get you to come down here and and take care of you know some yeah. local people and and tell me about tell me about that course and about Protect Her in general. Uh, I know that that course was basically uh, some young ladies that were headed off to college uh, here and, in, in, well, I guess they're already gone now. But, uh, yep. j- yeah, just give me give me an overview of, of Protect Her and then how that course went and, uh, you know, the feedback you got from that one because I know the feedback I got from it was extremely positive.
2: Appreciate that, Jake. Um, yeah, Protect Her course was developed uh, specifically for that topic. The girls that I was working with in, in Coronado and San Diego at the time. They were um, they they were concerned. Some of them had had experienced different levels of of uh, sexual assault, whether whether it was uh, something at the workplace or something at you know something at a party in college or something you know where they're just out shopping with with girlfriends, broke away to get to their car, and and an incident occurred. So. I put something together there, but then took it further, dove in, and you know studied the analytics of what makes the crime. What are the pre-incident indicators, um, and what other things are taking place uh, with this crime statistically to kind of better analyze how that crime unfolds, and then knowing that, um, understanding aberrant behavior identification, um, tuning the girls into more skill sets than just kind of jack somebody up
0: yeah a lot of it a lot of it has to do with avoidance and and just being able to recognize when something's about to go screwy and then just getting the hell out you know i I know that there's that's a big part of it too but then being able to recognize that like you're saying that aberrant behavior
2: absolutely you know they're they're and and of course you know does have the physical skills which everybody wants everybody wants to be able to throw down and whoop some ass but you know what i'm what i'm Bringing to light there is the pieces of situational awareness, pre-incident indicators, them understanding how it unfolds. It is a chess game, and if you know how the game's played, this is how you can avoid it, not just get out of it, how to avoid it altogether, how to walk through you know, your life uh, and not not get yourself into these situations to begin with. I mean, if you're waiting to be rigorous and tossing the trunk of the car, and now say, now it's time to go. You kind of, you kind of missed the bus. Yeah. What What took place if you were to rewind that reel? What took place the ten steps, fifteen steps prior to that that got you into that position? So that brought a lot of awareness there. And we address, we address stand up and grabs and a lot of different scenarios that I'm running them through, and then impact drills and then different striking. Vital area striking and then ultimately uh, ground, ground position, uh, different different types of attacks they can do from the ground, escapes that they can do from the ground, and ultimately, because um, this is not, uh, you know, two guys that are going at it um, for stupid reasons where they're going to stay there and just knock the living hell out of each other. If it's that type of scenario, for the girls, it's about escape. You know, right. how, can they, how can they create some create some pain, create some space and and get the hell out. That's it. That's that's kind of their mission. For the guys, again, on the OCM side, it's a little bit more thorough, it's a little bit more comprehensive, and there's a lot more uh, different types of scenarios that guys are finding themselves on, whether they're doing contract work or they're still active dirt active duty and uh milk up LE sectors. So
0: Yeah. Well, going back, I know I first met you. I guess it's been 20 years now, um, mm-hmm. but uh, you you called and, and got in a class. I think you were I think you were you were still on the teams at the time. And, yeah, uh,
2: I was deployed. Um, I was just out of teams, doing some of the other work, and um, I don't even know how I found you, but uh, mm-hmm. I saw a picture of you with Shane and speedos and uh paracord fans on a range I'm like I gotta get trained with that guy
0: yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my normal, that's my normal uniform whenever I'm, yeah, that's, that's it, you know, and not many people can pull it off, you know, but Hey, I do what I can.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: not so sure about that. I get it. Uh, yeah. I'm not so sure about that, but you know, the thing that you came down, you took the course and then I found out about this and um, you know, what what rifles only has been doing. You and I have, have stayed in contact over the You've also been very fortunate to get you to come down here and conduct this OCM class for, uh, special operations units, you know, that were, you know, gearing up, you know, getting ready to go out. We were able to knock out some weapons training, you know, long range rifles, some handgun, and then some OCM. We've done that multiple times. You've also been down here multiple times, uh, to do the OCM for civilians. And, uh, it, it's been a while. I mean, I, I can't tell you. I mean, we did it a lot and, uh, it's been a while, but I wanted to, I wanted to get you on the podcast today because we have scheduled another one. And, um, I wanted everybody that's out in the listening land to know and also pass the word. It's, uh, it's on our, it's on our schedule now, but it's February 10th through the 12th. And that will be a, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and so I know that there'll be a lot of people that will be coming in for the for the train up and the brawl, which will start, the train up starts on their following Monday after working with you. And then the brawl is the following weekend. So if they want to come in and spend, you know, a good week down here at rifles only, uh, I am very, very glad, to have you back, and I'm very, very glad to be offering this course again. And uh I just it, it, the we've always, you know, I've I've talked to people about this, you know, about you know OCM and you know it's um it, it is I mean you can you can say what you want about it, but it is absolutely brutal and it's absolutely fast. I mean it it's like I always say, okay, you take this course, your fight's over in one point seconds or less, or your money back. And it's uh you know so it's kind of pretty well, it's not, it's not about, it's not about staying in the fight. It's about ending it. You know what I mean? And it's about creating that pain to end that fight To so because, you know, it's like I always tell, say in my safety meetings, you know, when before we start, you know, with the rifles, I say, Hey, you know, we we don't allow anybody to cover you with the muzzle, because if you're not being covered with the muzzle, you get shot a lot less. And so I think that if you're in one of these situations that where it is gone, you know, hand to hand, the less you're in that, the less pain you receive, you know, so if you can create the pain and get out, uh, you know, and that's kind of what OCM is. It's, it's not about long dragged out battles. You know, it's, it's about, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, it's about, you know, let's, let's solve this problem and then it's over. And so, uh, with, uh, the people that could possibly be thinking about coming out here and and take this course, I mean, Marco, I already know the answer, but I'm going to let you answer it. But do I have to be uh 3% body fat, uh, you know, 212 pounds, um, you know, five, seven, you know, all muscle to take this course.
2: Is that the description of you these days? No,
0: no, 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 it's not. It's not, (laughs) it's not. It it used, it used to be, but you know, (laughs) no, not anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I'm (laughs) toning it down a little bit. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, so the short answer is, um, it's, it's for the guy that is, mentally switched on to want to have situational awareness and avoidance but have something in his back pocket you know Mm -hmm. that he could that he could use in the event of a violent altercation Mm -hmm. and 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 that's given him skills that he could learn you know uh fairly quickly in a three-day saturation program as we do it down there at ro um it's three full days and when they're when their days are over, there's they're smoke, but it's not like the focus of the course is, okay, rope climbs and fireman carries and wind sprints. That's not the drill. There's there's the technical aspect so that we can get the repetition. Guys don't have to come there with tons of cardio. Although if they show up and got some of my Jiu-Jitsu guys, my wrestlers and MMA types, that's fine. You have that gas time. But that's not what's the requisite. You don't need that because you're going to be doing – Short sequences, I'm going to be breaking them down for you, baby-stepping it. You're going to walk away with the information. You know, we do water breaks. It's not about, you know, some grueling physical put-out evolution. You know, we're not doing, you know, uh, wads and and crushing it and and getting on the mat and sparring. That's not what we're doing. We're banging, and you're learning about um, basic sequences, how to handle a knife, how to handle impact weapons how to handle an individual in a close quarters environment. And all these areas are kind of foreign to most people. So we don't want to be hitting the gas pedal and running them through exhausted. We want to get them through this course here so that they can memorize the stuff. So the short answer is, there is, you know, uh, 3% body fat uh, is, is not needed. You know, we get plenty, plenty of regular dudes and, uh, and they do fine. They crush
0: all right. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, man, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and, uh, and visiting with us about it. I, I hope that uh, people that are out there listening to the podcast, uh, see if you want to come in and, and take this course from Marco. Like I said, it's been done at Rifles Only many, many times in the past with a wild, wild success. Uh, the, the feedback that we get from these courses is, is has always been positive. I've, I've never had a negative review of it even once. Um, and again, I know that, you know, some of the, some of the guys that you trained out here have actually had to put this into play and, um, I've heard about those, you know, here and there. And so it, it, it really is a good course. And I think the, one of the things that makes it so good is because it's been developed, you know, over a period of time to where you're able to get a lot, a lot done in a short period of time, just because you have the ability and I'll call it economy of teaching, you know, and it's kind of like the. You know, when we first did the we first did the precision rifle one and two, you know, it was a six day course, you know, 800 rounds. And now it's a, a, you know, four and a half day course, 350 rounds. And we're doing 10 times as much, you know, and that that's just how that spread out over the last, you know, 20, 20, 25,000 yards, 25 years. And so. Uh, it, 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 I know that you've done the same thing. You're you're given the best bang for the buck in the shortest amount of time. But again, if anybody wants to do that, um, hop on that hop on that lessons only website. You can register online. Um, and again, just just think about it because I guarantee you're going to come away with a lot better skill set than what you have now. Even if you're even if you're already a fighter.
2: Yeah, and and Jake, you know, appreciate everything you just said. But I want to give just just think it's the right thing to do. I, I you now first of all. I was, First podcast I've ever done in my life and uh you know not really um on the social um chatting it up out there as well but um you know i want to give shout out to you know i think with each each martial artist that's out there you know you we, we we come to the place that we're at through this long journey this long path to cultivate our craft and um i think i'd be remiss if i didn't give shout out to uh you know some of my some of my instructors. You know from way back in the day. Um, you know the go late, right ahead. The late the late Bob Tes. The guy was a fucking legend. The badass. He was a Marine, devil dog, hard charging, mofo. And um, you know back in the day, I had the fortunate opportunity to uh, to to learn from him, who he had learned from Charlie Nelson. Right, that was kind of like one of the OGs from back in the day. Um, that was around when when Bob started, you know, doing it. So, um, yeah, Bob Castleman, man, uh, BK, amazing, amazing guy, much love. And um, another guy um, also out there, uh, one of his brothers that um, had his own schoolhouse going on. And uh, when I was down at Brad doing some uh, medic shit, uh, got to go and train with him every weekend. And uh, that was John Carey that's a Vietnam era that hard charging banging motherfucker. And that guy, man, the, the groin shots were relentless and brutal. <laughs> Anybody who remembers training with him, wheeled his signature move, wheeled cup hand blow to the groin. And uh, over a weekend, I probably got a hundred shots in the net. And, um, he was hardcore East coast, like Bob too. And, um, Again, Vietnam guy, a banger, and um, uh, and, a, and a holder to the keys of this old-school knowledge because, you know, those were the guys that put it together. And last but not least, um, and this is not all-inclusive. It's just, you know, relevant to what we're talking about here with uh, DQC, close-quarter combators, close combat, whatever you prefer to call it. And uh, that would be Kelly McCann, man. Kelly, Kelly's still around today. so every a good chance to train with him. Get out there and, and and crush some shit with him again. Bringing bringing the violence, bringing the bringing the mindset, bringing the skill set. Um, you know, so you know to to get to where I'm at. You know, you asked that in the opening of the conversation, Fog If it wasn't a, if it wasn't for me being a blessed bastard, crossing paths with some amazing bad motherfuckers, mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't be here today. Still putting them. Material out, right? I'm paying it forward now to the next generations of guys who have a chip in their head that says, "I think I need to know this whack shit." And um, and so, yeah. So there you go. Much love to those three gentlemen, and um,
0: that's it, brother. That's all we got. All right, man. All right, I appreciate it. Hey, if you're if you're listening and you have any questions uh, for Marco uh, or about the course or anything else, send them to R O A P r-o-a-p at riflesonly.com that's the that's the rifles only accuracy podcast uh exclusive email uh i will make sure that we get these questions to marco and i make sure that we get them answered on the podcast for you uh additionally uh like i say the new schedule's out that course is on the schedule uh you go to the website sign up for the rifles only newsletter and uh all these whenever these new things get put on here and and this one you know i I have you all have listened to me in the past you know i always always plug it, but I really wanted to make sure that we plug this course because I think it's important. I think it's something that is not found anywhere else. I mean, you, you cannot go and find this kind of course um, pretty well anywhere. Uh, like I say, I, it's, it's happened here quite a few times and uh, we're, we're really, really excited and delighted to be able to offer this course again. But yeah, David, you got anything else? We're about time to wrap uh, no,
1: up. No, the only thing I could think of, and uh, hopefully, you didn't you guys uh, didn't cover it. I zoned out there for a minute trying to keep it all, all the sounds and stuff. Good, uh, Marco. Do you, do you do other stuff? You got some other like a website or other products or anything besides training that you're doing?
2: Negative, sir. I kind of just have a, a small little network of brothers like Jacob huh. and the groups that I already, you know kind of stay in contact with and they bring me in from time to time but i'm not really doing it on a large scale commercial scale there's no videos there's no website i'm a freaking million
0: no, years no.
2: behind the time of technology you know so it's like you know this podcast is uh, white man magic so i'm like, having <laughs> fun with it and from what jacob says people turn on their computers and listen to it oh okay. yeah a lot
1: of people listening and driving to work we get a lot of a lot uh-huh. of stuff so yeah, yeah it's it's, yeah. it's be good yeah. and and uh anybody i'm sure there's some some uh i'm sure there's some dot mill guys but anybody in law enforcement uh if you can't make this course i suggest that you make some other course i have a background in you know grappling muay thai and all that but most of us don't right. and uh contrary to what the public believes we don't get a lot of training uh it, it's not that great i mean we get some but uh you know learning what to do when somebody when especially when you get thrown on your back at work because we you know like you like i think you already pointed out we can't just uh a, a lot of times for us it's not about getting away we still have to try to make an apprehension or save somebody or ourselves so uh i would just highly suggest anybody in, in law enforcement get to one of these classes or one of the guys he mentioned or anybody reputable because uh you know if don't wait around your department to do it uh chances are the budget's not there especially with the whole defund police thing going on so you might have to get out there and spend a little bit of your own money
0: the only thing you're betting is your life
1: yeah don't you know you're gonna wish when you when you find yourself in the middle of that 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 few hundred dollars or or a couple thousand dollars or whatever it costs to travel and everything is is not going to seem like much money trust me I've, i've been in a lot of them uh, other than that, uh, I guess we just say thanks to the same people we always do. Voodoo, Leopold, uh, Zero Compromise, We Bad, uh, XLR. Uh, they sent me a little care package. I'll post more about that on social media. They they sent me a little a uh, little bit of swag and stuff. So hopefully, like I said, I think we'll be trying to work with them a little bit. Uh, who else do we have? Who else am I missing here?
0: Oh, we just man, you you've got you already said We Bad, Leopold. Uh, Magpul, Magpul has mm-hmm. been really, really good to us. Voodoo. Um, God, oh, man, we, we need to make a list. Yeah, we keep we saying we're going to make a list, but we have to make a make list. Yeah. There's that other thing too. Uh, I got that, the um, the MUB, uh, if you go to oh, the, the MUB.com, yeah, the MUB, it's, uh, it's, uh, goes on top of your tripod and it's got real estate to put, you know, spotting scope, laser rangefinder range finder, Kestrel holder, whatever. Uh, I've been using those. Uh, I, he sent me one of these and I've been using it and I'm I'm completely off the charts impressed. I got plenty of real estate on there to, to hold all my electronics and everything else. And again, uh, R-O-A-P, Romeo, Oscar, Alpha, Papa at RiflesOnly.com. Questions for us, questions for Marco, questions for any of our guests or just regular questions or just send us an email and say hi. Marco, thank you again. I appreciate you coming in and, and visiting with us.
2: Much love, brother. Appreciate it. Much gratitude, Dave, for putting oh, this yeah. together on the tech side and uh hope to see you down there banging if if it interests you and best to you both. Have a great weekend. All
0: right. All right um, stay the um, line with us, Marco. Yep. Okay. All right. Goodbye, guys. We'll see you next time.